Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship in dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. Uh, I'm James Johnson, and I'm here, as always, with Nick Houston. <laughs> Nick Houston. Uh, and we are joined today with by our special guest, the director of music ministries here at Northside Church, Michael Devine. Michael, how are you doing today? Doing great. It's beautiful blue sky day. It is beautiful outside today. It's true. I can feel spring is right around the corner. We were talking about that as we were... Um, uh, getting prepared to go on air today and uh, sense of hope this spring mm-hmm. that we did not have last spring and uh, it's really it's giving me some energy I feel good I feel good so Nick, it is neat you, to you see feeling? the daffodils coming up the yeah. tulips poking through the ground everything's springing to life we are now about the middle way almost middle way through Lent uh, Michael how's your how's your Lent experience been this year you know, certainly different than last year, um, which was uh, almost an acceleration of experiencing uh, death and emptiness and loss yeah. last year. And I think in a new way, trying to continue the creative experience of uh, offering um, and providing in this Lent, whether it means preparations for Easter looking different as a lot of COVID worship has, uh, but trying to find new ways to engage people through worship and music. Um, and although it's, again, different than last year, uh, it's mostly a better different than last year. Um, I'm mindful of this was our last week of normal a year ago. Yeah. Um, and I I still remember actually having a conversation specifically with Tiffany Uzoji in the music department uh, who shared that she was a little concerned about this virus thing that was starting to spread, and did I really think that our next festival worship Sunday was going to happen, uh, which was at that point was about two and a half weeks away. And I said, well, yeah, of course it's going to. Um, you know, we've got this this guy flying in from Dallas that's going to play piano with us. The orchestra's contracted. Like, yeah, of course it's going to happen. Yeah. And literally five days later is when we were making all the decisions to shut everything down and still being, even now today, kind of being shell-shocked how yeah. fast and sudden we went from this, quote, virus that's spreading to things are stopping. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember that. It was very it came on very quickly, mm-hmm. very quickly. And uh, I, I would have, I mean, if you had asked me in January or December, maybe even into February, would we ever <laughs> not have people in the building? Right. I, that's unthinkable to me. Have I told y'all that, uh, you know, Bill and I meet every week. We sit down and chat about what's going on so I can keep get that up on and the he air. should keep up. <laughs> it would be entertaining. Um, and he, a uh, couple weeks before we shut everything down, he said, you know, I really think that we need to pay attention to this virus that's going mm-hmm. on. And I said, Bill, it's in China. <laughs> yep. yep. Bird yep. flu, swine flu, whatever. It never makes it over here. That's true. I, I remember, I specifically remember reading um, a issue of The Economist magazine around as the pandemic was really starting to get underway. And it was a picture of the globe wearing a face mask, but the face mask was specifically on the country of China, as, as yeah. if we are working as a world to contain this thing in one location. But the yeah. notion of it's going to spread, I mean... That wasn't anybody's radar. You know, I saw a stat on, I think it was probably on Facebook, but it came from PBS, and it was listing the deaths uh, 
because of children's deaths because of mm. flu over the past three flu seasons. And so the average has been about 160, 190, somewhere in there. Kids every year die because of the flu season. This year, this flu season, one child has died because of the flu. So one of the brighter sides of, of the coronavirus pandemic has been because of all the social distancing and face mask wearing, uh, the flu hasn't really been an issue right. at all okay. this year. So that's that's a bright side to look yeah. at. I can see it in my house. You know, with four kids, somebody's usually sick. Yeah. Like, there's just no way to get it, you know. And this year, I mean, it's been why everybody's been so well. My five-year-old has not run a fever for a year, like, it that's yeah it's been working yeah that's great <laughs> michael you uh i'm sure you are in in deep preparation now for easter coming up i don't know if you want to take a moment to share what what we can expect to see for the easter service and some of the celebrations we're going to be doing well i think in in some ways what is um has been a blessing in the midst of the pandemic is finding again new ways to engage uh, people and engage the musicians that we do still have working at the church um, in new expressions of worship and in new events and activities. One of the things that has changed a little bit this year is that Maundy Thursday is going to be a service in the Faith and Arts Center uh, led by Matt and his musicians. And we are once again trying to do an experiment with Good Friday yeah. at, at Northside, which has not always been a, um, a high holy day that we uh celebrates not the right word but uh recognize, recognize i should say yeah. uh at Northside. we are doing so this year with another one of our vespers concerts like we did back in uh december at the christmas season which i'm looking forward to uh but easter will once again will be you know the first easter that we've had with people yeah. back in the building i mean i i still remember feeling so strange about pre-recording an easter service yeah. two weeks out um at the end of March last year, I actually, actually, I take the back. I think it was actually literally on April 1st or 2nd yeah. that we were recording um, Easter and still being sh so shell-shocked by having, you know, quickly gathered together a few singers. And uh, I asked a trumpet player friend of mine to come down and, and help us out. And this year, having more plan and preparation of having a few more of the singers, knowing that we're going to have people in the building again uh, to celebrate the resurrection and knowing that we can hear the Hallelujah Chorus again. That's awesome. That's great. I mean, I'm so excited. I'm so pumped about Easter coming back. I mean, not having missing it last year was a big deal. Yeah. And uh, it's good to have it back. Do, do, do you find that people tend to prefer Christmas or Easter? Like, if I say a favorite holiday? It... I, I mean, I, they, I, I don't know. I don't... Do you have me, a lean towards one or the other? Uh, I, don't, I guess for me, it's always been Easter, but Christmas has its own special kind of, I guess, I guess if I, I don't, if I thought about it in terms of like sentimentality and family connection and tradition and stuff like that, it's always Christmas. But when I think about it from a theological perspective or from a biblical perspective yeah. for me, uh, it doesn't get any better or more important. I didn't know you Easter ever yet. thought about sentimentality. <laughs> I generally, I, you know, I, I have a little, I have a little bit in me, a little bit that comes out around Christmas time and then goes away. I thought it was all theology all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, well, I'm excited about that. I don't know, uh, Nick, if you have any thoughts about uh, getting back in the building and, and Easter coming up, uh, how many services are we going to have on Easter? It sounds like... We're going to have six. Six mm -hmm. different We're going to have three traditional services and three contemporary services. We're going to stream the services that are usually streamed. So we'll have some services that aren't streamed because 
we can't get everything online and in the building done all at the same time. Yeah. Um, I think the big offering that I'm excited about for Easter Sunday is doing an outside outdoor worship again. Um, there's going to be a one o'clock service outside that'll be a contemporary service. Um, but hopefully the weather holds out and that'll give people who may be uncomfortable coming in the building uh, an opportunity to worship together yeah. outside. I was hoping this might be our opportunity to do a sunrise service, but it sounds like that. That didn't come together in the way that I guess nobody likes to get up around sunrise here. Usually that's about the time I'm going to bed. So I was, I I was, I was going to wait for it. Well, I see you, you know, here ready to go for that 8 a.m. service every week. So I just knew uh, you'd love a sunrise God, service. Oh, right. We probably have to be in the building at 4.30 a.m. <laughs> Preparing for the crowd. That's I just correct. would love to know. I just, I just don't see a sunrise service going over well. Yeah, well. Anyway, before we get to Easter, let's uh, let's spend some time thinking about Lent. We've been walking through this Lent devotion that uh, Northside has put together for the season of Lent, Sand on the Seashore. And uh, this week, we as we continue the story following the, the, the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, we've, we've talked about the Israelites being in Egypt and slavery and then crossing through the Red Sea and coming into the wilderness. This week, uh, as they walk through the wilderness, we find them uh, around the mountain of Mount Sinai, around the base of Mount Sinai, as as they receive uh, the famous Ten Commandments and the law uh, from Moses. A lot of stuff going on um, in this particular uh, time period, in this particular story. Um, let me just throw it to you guys. What um, what are your some of your initial thoughts about the week that we just had? I did not realize that God delivered the Ten Commandments to the Israelites directly. Yeah. So, so this is something I've totally forgot about myself as I was doing the preparation for this. And in Exodus chapter 20, he, the Ten Commandments are delivered by God uh, directly to all the Israelites, which is what freaks them out, which is what gets them scared and say, you know what, maybe, maybe we should send Moses up. And I had forgotten that, I think. Well, so what was the story about Moses taking the tablets up and coming down with the tablets and then breaking the tablets and then going back up and getting new tablets right. well, and coming down again? Which Indiana Jones fan? <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that, that Mel Brooks movie, uh, History of the World Part 1, when Moses comes down with three tablets and he's like, these 15, and he stumbles and drops one. He's like, oh. These ten commandments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, so that's a. So they asked Moses to go up uh, the mountain after that, and he goes up, and God, you know, God puts the the verses, the, the verses. Right. He puts them the commandments on the, on the stone tablets, and as he's coming back down with them, that's when he sees the the golden calf and all the nonsense and shenanigans that the Israelites mm-hmm. have gotten up to, and he gets angry and throws them down, and then he ha- he has to go up and and write them himself after that chisel them so. So, I think that's how it goes. So when did so when God delivers the Ten Commandments directly, what like I thought it was just the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. Well, that, I mean that that those that does happen, right? That does happen. But uh, before that, as they approach Mount Sinai, as they as they arrived at Mount Sinai, from the top of the mountain, they hear the voice of God, and God Ooh. says He gives out the Ten Commandments, and then later on they get oh. etched in the stone. So. Okay. The point of that being, one of the things, uh, one, so this is a big moment in the history of Israel, in my mind, from a theological perspective, one that I think Paul picks up on in Second Corinthians, where God wants to speak directly to the people. Like, that's, that's God's plan. That's what God wants to have happen. But the Israelites are so afraid 
of, of a, a direct access to God, that they pick a mediator in Moses. And Moses is the one who then interacts for them or mediates for them, receiving the law and bringing it back down. That's part of what is happening in the New Testament, that mediator being removed or being replaced by God himself in Jesus Christ. So that mediator uh, who is Moses then becomes representative of what the law is in general. And so mm-hmm. the law in Moses being removed, Jesus Christ is now our mediator who is God himself. So, well, What was interesting to me about your conversation about the Ten Commandments, but then also including the, some of the conversation about the veiling of the face, yeah. uh, directly relates to the law in the uh, freeze around the Supreme Court you know, within uh, yeah. the courtroom itself are depictions of a whole bunch of ancient law givers and major motives in uh, ancient law. Yeah. And there is a uh, spot where there's a depiction of Moses holding two tablets. Mm-hmm. But um, I forget if it's Moses himself or it's another character, but that person's shoulder is covering the first tablet with the first four commandments. And so that the only commandments visible to the court are the latter six, which oh, wow. have to do with the relations between human beings. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason that that struck me while reading this devotion was directly related to your conversation about veiling from God's glory. Yeah. And although I think it's probably appropriate in the Supreme Court that there's not, you know, the notion of God's law of himself being related to our human law in U.S. Yeah. You know, courts. It's interesting that we have this veil around mm-hmm. the, the law of God that is within, within the context of the court. I did not know that. I did not know that. I don't think I've ever thought about the Supreme Court uh, architecture before, but that's fascinating. That's I tell really you what, facts with Michael Devine. I know, right? Every time we do something <laughs> with Michael Devine, we learn something, we learn something new, new facts. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit. Um, uh, the week kicks off. So uh, on Sundays, we're doing introductions, and mm-hmm. Sundays aren't technically part of Lent, so part of me is uncomfortable mm-hmm. that, that we even do anything <laughs> on Sunday. Uh, but anyway, so introducing the week, you know, I, I do talk about the, um, yeah. the passage where, where this glory of God, the presence of God is just shining on Moses's face. And this reflection that happens or this, um, this reflection that is supposed to happen with us as the church, as we reflecting Christ's face back and forth to one another and the transformation of that image only because the veil has been removed only because we live uh, in freedom. And we've talked a little bit about freedom already mm-hmm. on the podcast, but this idea of freedom and coming out of slavery and what true freedom actually is for us in Christ is, is a theme that I think is um, we talk about freedom quite a bit, you know, as good Americans, as we, as we said before, but we're not talking about the right kind of freedom sometimes. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts about, um, if you have any thoughts about, about what, what kind of, of freedom that we are talking about and, and, and how removing that veil is, is what gives us that freedom. Well, I, th- I think that's the whole idea that the notion of freedom is simply changing who your master is. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is you're, you're, you're exchanging bondage from one thing to another. That's very Lutheran. So we're always going to be a slave to something, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, and that, and that, the only thing where freedom is found is if your master is correct or if you have the correct master. Excuse right, me. Right. Um, the other usage of veil in a new Testament context that I think is interesting also related to this notion of freedom and where it's found is 
although it's a different word for veil, but the notion of the sheet falling in from heaven in the book yeah. of Acts. Yeah. And, and the fact that, you know, the gospel, salvation, heaven, God himself is available to the Gentile. Yeah. Um, that, that notion of accessibility, which is transformed in Exodus at the giving of the law, yeah. is once again reformed um, by the accessibility to Gentiles, yeah. to God himself. And then the notion of then our the veil of our face then being also dropped to be able to see God. I, I'm reminded, you know, in um, some churches, the Bible is held on a, a pedestal that's in the shape of an eagle. Okay. And the eagle's gaze is upward. Yeah. And uh, I always just kind of thought that it looked like it just is cool church stuff or something. Right. I had no idea what the meaning of that was until I finally asked somebody. And what it is is you know, uh, the eagle is the gospel um, animal, if you will, associated with um, St. John. John. Yeah, John. And, uh, and John is the one who is most representative of this, but it's the idea that the eagle, when, and when an eagle f- flies, is one of the few birds that will fly directly into the light of the sun. Oh, wow. Uh, most birds don't do that. Yeah. And so the reason why Bibles are put on these eagle pedestals is the notion that through the word of God, we're able to look into the face of God oh, like cool. an eagle glares into the yeah. sun. Um, and it's that the, the, the power that the word gives. That's we're going to start a fact counter. Well, you know, I, one of the things that in, in both the facts that you've dropped today so far, um, just paying attention to the architecture of how we set up our buildings, whether mm. they're secular or, or, uh, or religious, um, it's something that I've, I've kind of gotten, I've been in a bad habit of not paying attention to our, our architecture so much, but, um, but just that kind of symbolism of flying into the sun, you know, through the word of God. The glory of God. The glory of God. Unveiled. Mm-hmm. Unveiled. And I think... I love your take on that, though, too, James, that, that the... I think that there's so much concern, especially in scripture that we are, we are properly humbled and veiled before God. And that in some yeah. ways you're through, through Paul's own words, you're flipping that on its head, which in some ways kind of caught me off guard going, Oh, that's right. We, we, <laughs> we, we, we can directly approach the throne. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No. And I, you know, I think we, um, one of the reasons I think this is one of my favorite passages. Uh, and I say that about all of them, but it really is <laughs> in the sense that like, uh, I do think that we put, we are, we are just like the Israelites in the sense of, man, unmediated access to God is terrifying, mm. right? It not only brings about this level of accountability that we have, you know, because of, of we, we don't have any excuse. Like, we're hearing this directly from the Holy Spirit through Je- you know, Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, but we, we, it's terrifying in the sense of, like, what, what is God going to ask of us to do? You know, what is it that, you know, we don't have this law anymore, but we still have the gospel. And I think sometimes we want to turn the gospel back into a law. And we want to, we've, we've talked about this before, you know, turning into a, a turning into a checklist or some kind of thing that, upon which to break people rather than to free people. And uh, I, I just see a lot of uh, parallels between us and those, and those scared Israelites huddled around Mount Sinai. The law is simple. I mean, just... That checklist is simple, and, yeah. and there's a there's a desire to to how do we make this gospel easier? Well, yeah. We can make it easier by just saying, well, if you can do these things, then you're you qualify. Well, and also the the notion, and and I also was struck too, James, by the reminder, in some ways, almost not just the reminder, but almost the 
re-questioning of, about the story of God giving the law directly and then Moses being becoming the mediator. Yeah. Um, it's almost the beginning uh, flashes of Israel's later obsession with needing and wanting a king. And, and although that is the story of Israel, I think that's in many ways the story of all our own hearts, or at least I'll say it's the story of mine, that there, there's, there is a desire of, um, in society amongst others to, to be ruled. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a lot easier. I, I don't want to be accountable in that way to God. So, so what, what's, what's the pathway to do so? Yeah. And I think that's the, the danger that that's the humble danger of then being a church is that when, when as a church, if you're in the position of telling people about the condition of their immortal soul, yeah, that's an awful weight of responsibility. It is um, about the how and what and when and why and yeah. the checklist or lack thereof um, and what that all means. I wonder if a lot of churches, you know, we started off this entire um, devotional by talking about how we don't talk about sin anymore, really, uh, not not in the ways that yeah. we have historically. And I wonder if that that kind of responsibility you're talking about about the immortality, you know, our immortal souls. I wonder if if that isn't connected somehow, you know, that I think a lot of churches, uh, and I've seen this happen at Northside Church, but a lot of churches, we like to shy away from, from being too certain or, or being too um, direct with, with our folks about what this project is all, all about, really. Um, and just the fact that we don't talk about sin tells me that that is the case because, you know, I mean, why, why we talked about this last week, but why are we talking about salvation if we haven't defined what we're being saved from. Well, it's the very first of the Beatitudes, and I love that you you went there during things this week. Jesus is calling things and calling out things to be blessed, which go against, I think, the natural state of human nature. Yeah. Again, at least I'll speak about my own heart. Yeah. And the very first thing he talks about are those who are poor in spirit. Yeah. Um, simple phrase, easy to gloss onto the next one. What does that even really mean? Yeah. And I, I think, I, I know I, I love the sense of pride of being full and rich in spirit. Yeah. And the fact that the very first thing Christ talks about <laughs> is, is, yeah. is are those who are poor. Yeah. And because we all are. Um, that that's the the nature of being uh, sinful. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a couple different ways you can take that uh, beatitude, and and you're right. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about that and what it really means, but we do like those spirited people, right? The people who uh, who don't have the brokenheartedness or or are full of themselves, right? And I, I like to translate that as being uh, being poor in self, mm-hmm. right? And and talking about because that that for me connects directly to what the overall message or the very short version of Jesus's gospel, which is deny yourself, right? Take up the cross and follow me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you plugged in that poor in self versus poor in spirit, because I think mm-hmm. similar to the yeah. conversation we had about freedom, where, what do you mean by freedom? I hit that poor in spirit and say, well, what do you mean by spirit? You know, I'm used to the context of spirit as Holy spirit and spirit of God mm-hmm. and spirit yeah. as a, as a part of God. And so to be poor in spirit, um, that, that word spirit reads differently. Yeah. Um, Try and to look I, out for that capitalization. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I do, I do think it's I, gl- I have, somebody's making that choice for you. So. I have glossed over it, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, 
as you read through it, you just kind of go board and check. Um, and so to really refocus that on, yeah, I don't know. I was, I was picking up ego. Like, yeah. And I think that's right. I think ego is selflessness is, is a good way to talk about it. I, you know, for Lent, our very first, the first, uh, really focused and directed Lent devotional that, that I did here. This is the fifth one, I think. So the wow. this is five years ago, I actually, we actually did the Beatitudes and the Lord's Prayer as our guiding. If you remember, mm-hmm. do you remember? I think this was before you were here, Michael, maybe. Um, or it might have been in your first. It was around that time period. Okay. Um, but for me, like the Beatitudes and, and what I tried to convey here is um, it, they're almost like a seven-step process to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ where you have, you know, the first thing that has to happen is being poor in spirit. And then mm-hmm. once you are fully aware of what you have lost and and what and how broken that you really are, you know, blessed are you who mourn, you know, for who truly lament what you were before. That word mourn can be translated as lament. Uh, lament what you were before and the things that you've done, you know, and then moving toward uh, being blessed in, what's the next one? I can't even remember. Uh, uh, blessed are the meek. Yeah, blessed are the meek. And it's right, so that's, that's the true, like, the true character, being meek. And when you think about being meek, you know, mm-hmm. You want to think about like being Mr. Rogers or something like that, you know, somebody mm-hmm. who is not, you're not, we, you're not weak, but you are, you're oh, not cocky, right? You're not arrogant. And, it, and winning the fight is not something that, or winning the argument, winning the fight um, is not something that you want to take it to your own hands. You, you have confidence in God to. Well, and even more so than that, because this is probably the one that I personally struggle with the most uh, in the presence of those who are truly meek the notion of arguments tend to just naturally melt away. Right. The, the, so the, the, the notion of quote winning an argument right. isn't even present. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've ever had an argument with a meek person. Yeah. Not because they somehow wouldn't fight back, but because you, you don't have arguments with meek people yeah. that, that naturally just melts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, in, in its own way, the spiritual gift that those individuals bear upon us and the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I think you see that in Jesus. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's embodied in, in the person of Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, I wonder if Paul would consider himself meek, but, uh, you know, <laughs> probably not <Ooh>. so much. <laughs> we just read the passage today in Bible study um, where he says, so that I wouldn't become conceited, the Lord gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, right? And I'm like, mm, I don't wonder if it worked or not. I'm not sure. <laughs> Can you illustrate how humble you are by pointing out? Yeah, it is the passage that begins with him saying, and I'm not going to talk about myself, but I know a guy who was taken up to the third heaven and saw all these revelations from God. You know, He's talking about himself. This, um, this word, I'm going to go off on one more nerd fact tangent here with a quick minute. Yes. Please, um, please. The, the word blessed is always fascinating. And actually, this specific verse, the, the blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, has always been fascinating because there's a direct musical connection with this. Um, the composer Brahms, like many 19th century composers, sort of saved one of his big epic thrusts of musical composition for a requiem setting that and it's and it's odd that the topic of death would fascinate composers yeah. that that's what most 19th century composers their pinnacle composition was a requiem of some sort yeah brahms was very different because he literally did not engage in any of the latin catholic text and he himself by himself compiled a collection of texts from the lutheran bible um with the with the effort of wanting to 
quote, comfort those who are still mourning. And so this is actually one of the verses that he sets in his Requiem. Um, But in German, the word for blessed is zelig. The word for soul is zele. And there's a direct etymological tie between the word blessed and the word soul in that the, what you're, whatever you're saying about this word zelig, which is again word for blessed, already implies that what you're talking about is the condition of the soul and the condition of the spirit, and that's not just sort of the state of oh I'm blessed. Yeah, it's it's an actual hashtag you, you, blessed. Right, right. It's, it's, it's like the actual condition of your soul and spirit has been transformed in some yeah. fashion, and that has always really struck me. And when you sing this or listen to this piece. There is interplay between the word blessed and soul then in yeah. in the German singing of, of this piece. And so this verse has always meant a lot to me personally because yeah. of that connection with that music, which is one of my favorites. Well, and, and for, for our purposes, um, uh, connecting to this kind of two-part thing that we've done with Advent and, and mm-hmm. it, this whole thing started with a blessing, right, to Abraham and... For me, I guess, I guess for me, what I understand to be blessing is, is for at least for Abraham in that kind of defining moment is, is the presence of God yeah, and, and the kind of transformation that that takes place, not just on a spiritual level, but on a physical reality level and just a whole person, the whole soul you could talk about. Um, and, and that's what, I think that's what Christ is trying to get at with the Beatitudes as well, you know, and it, it, what, what, what's great about it is that, you know, he goes through all these Beatitudes where you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you're, you become pure of heart, which is, we talked about being sanctification last week. And it ends with being a peacemaker. That's the culmination. So what a disciple mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ looks like is that you are a peacemaker. But after that, <laughs> after that, there's another beatitude. And that beatitude is the one where the world responds to peacemakers, right? Where you are persecuted, mm-hmm. you are, uh, rev- you know, you're, you are uh, persecuted and, and tortured or, or whatever. Like you're not... You are not allowed to live um, in a peaceful life, and yet you still are a peacemaker. That's what a disciple looks like. That that speaks to the purpose for what we have been freed for, right? And and so we started off the week. Well, and you know, just in terms of a like just a contemporary connection to that, like, yeah. like as Americans, it's so hard to grasp this one. I know even in hearing stories, it's still yeah. hard. But like I think about this just last week, uh, uh, Pope Francis was in Iraq um, visiting a city that for a long, long stretch of time had been occupied by ISIS. Yeah. um, And he was there to hold mass. And and how, I mean, amazing and wonderful that that the Pope would go to honor those Christians. Yeah. I'm sure many of whom aren't necessarily even Catholic. Yeah. Um, And yet... You zoom out just a little bit from the story of the Pope going, and you think through the Christians who continue to live in a city not necessarily occupied by a foreign power in terms of a government not Iraqi, but the notion of them being governed by a foreign power from a spiritual sense. Yeah, that they they were persecuted because of righteousness. Yeah, um, they they were not able. To to live, they may have been living in spiritual freedom, but they were not living at all in earthly freedom yeah. in, in in that sense. And the example, and to me, even just sort of confusing shock of of that witness, uh, I think bears true in a very contemporary sense to this verse. And you're you're right that 
we don't really have any we don't have any connection or idea of what that's like here in America as Christians here in America. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't heard that uh, about the Pope going there. That's, that's really cool. Fact four. Another fact. We'll keep track of those on the board. So, so to go back to, to the, what we said on Monday um, and I, the, what I want to, mm. Uh, talk about for just a second is as we as we walk through the beatitudes um we get an idea of what a disciple of jesus looks like and so when we're called and when we are freed from sin and death when we come out of the slavery of sin and death uh michael as you were saying we we become slaves to christ right we trade one master for another that's a purpose that we've been called to that we've been freed for uh just as the israelites were, were freed from their slavery, not so that they could just kind of do what they want and wander around and, and do whatever, uh, but so that they could become that people that is a blessing to all the families of the earth that God promised Abraham. Um, for me, a, a key piece of that uh, is the instruction of God, the instruction that that is received by Moses at Mount Sinai, but that uh, also represents the instruction, I think, for us of the Holy Spirit and and the education and, and things that we get when we're part of a church and how, you know, the gospels and how the scriptures speak to us. I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you guys a little bit about, um, I mean, what do you think about that idea that in order to truly be free as we're supposed to be free, we have to be, we have to be instructed. We have to be shaped uh, by the word of God. Uh, no, I actually, I, I highlighted that segment as, as you started out that day. Um, I underlined we've been freed for a purpose that last sentence of the first mm-hmm. you know section and then you do connect it there towards the end of the devotional that day with that the purpose god has is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth and i know for myself that without instruction from god and the holy spirit working in me i'm not going to be a blessing to the people around me yeah i'm going to be kind of a jerk (laughs) and so i need that instruction i need that holy spirit moving i i need the scripture um to make me the kind of person that can actually be a blessing yeah i i think uh, along those exact same lines you know two popular verses uh, about this are is Ephesians 2 8 and 9 the whole for by grace you've been saved not through faith it is a gift of God not of works and yet there's one more verse tagged onto that which is verse 10 which gets right at the heart of what you're talking about James for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand and then this last part which is walking along the seashore that we should walk in them yeah. Um and, and and the notion of I should use that passage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and the the notion of uh y- yes, life is not or excuse me, salvation is not about good works, but Christian living results in in them. Yeah. Um and that they are given to us by God. It, it is sort of the the great task and mission of the church and of Christians. Um, the you know the verse you do focus here from Genesis 12 to be a blessing to all the families of the earth where my brain went immediately when I saw that verse and I actually think it is intended to be a connection is straight to Mary's song the Magnificat in yeah. Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the notion that it is through the lineage of Abraham that you yeah. get Christ and Mary is praising God for that 
and we continue to sing and and read about that in the Christmas story, yeah. even as we're talking about this in the context of Lent. Yeah, we, we highlighted that during the season of Advent because of that direct connection. She makes a direct connection to Abraham. And it, leave right. it to Luke, the Gentile writer, right, to say, hey, through this thing that's <laughs> happened, all of us have been blessed, right? And we've all had uh, that veil been removed, and here we are. Same writer again. Acts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In my earlier days, and this is not, this doesn't happen as much anymore, although sometimes it comes up in Bible studies, this whole faith versus works thing mm. uh, was a big deal for, mm-hmm. for me when I was younger. Growing up in the tradition I grew up in, you know, and I point to Nick over here because he yeah. grew up in a similar tradition. Uh, man, it's all about faith and believing, and works has works have nothing to do with it almost. Mm-hmm. It's so much so, you know, that it's... Except for the checklist. Right? Well, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> like, so they talk about there not being uh, any works, but then, like, if you don't... If you don't come to church on Sunday and you don't, you know, go pray every day and read your Bible, uh, all of these works seem to work their way back in through the right. back door or something. Right. Um, and I think uh, when we talk about instruction, you know, anytime we talk about Moses and the law, I, I I see the Christians' eyes glaze over, and they they don't they don't want to talk about the law. They don't think the law is important, even though it's still part of the Word of God, right? It's still Scripture, still very much important. And Jesus Christ Himself said, like none of this stuff is passing away. This stuff's still important. There's definitely a thought that the law is irrelevant. Right, right. And 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 I want to say, I want to I want to be careful with that kind of attitude. Uh, mm-hmm. with any part of the Bible, but but particularly with the law of God that was given for purpose, the purpose to shape the people of Israel into the people of God. And to protect and care for them. That's exactly right. Like, one, one thing that has been on my mind a lot lately actually has to do with not necessarily the specificity of kosher law as then the Jewish people and you know, the human law that derived from it dealt with kosher law, but just simply the law in general in the old Testament having to do with the care and eating of animals. Yeah. And I think about in a very real way, the coronavirus pandemic that we're currently suffering under and the plausibility, although it's not certain, but the plausibility that it came from mishandled animal meat in an open market that, if you honestly were just following Old Testament law of how to handle animals, wouldn't Would be happening. Happened. Yeah, it's not, forget like WHO health rules. I mean, uh-huh. just talking about several thousand years old law yeah. here. Yeah. Um. And and how that has nothing to do with being uh, being oppressive. Right. It had to do with care. With care. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that's you, there are several examples of that throughout the law. Right. Now, I'm not in any way suggesting that we adopt all 613 laws from the old testament but so i think one of the one of the explicit things that comes out of of looking at this story though is that number one regardless of how free we may be we need discipline and and to be a disciple you need discipline and that, that seems to make sense right Ooh, we have to be a discipline etymological connection i know right um but on the other hand, like part of the purpose of the law was also to be a daily presence in the life of the people of Israel so that, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you plant corn and wheat together so that when you get up and you see the corn is separated from the wheat, you understand every single day when you go out to the field, you understand the church, the people of Israel, the people of God need to be separated from the world. Why can't you wear a shirt with polyester and cotton in it, right? 
Because every day when you put on your shirt, you'll be reminded that I need to be separate from those things that, that uh, are not part of God. Right? So there's a separation theme, a sanctification theme, being made holy kind of theme all throughout the law uh, that I think mm. we have lost. We've lost that daily reminder of who we are and our identity, right? It's not, it is, I don't know that it is, it is a... Um, well, that's why the Baptist came up with a WWJD bracelet. Right, right. That's that been effective. Was that really a Baptist? That was, that was your like, Charles Sheldon, I think. I'm just throwing it. Um, oh, you actually know who really came up with it? <laughs> yeah, it's a book written in the early 20th All right, century in his steps. James up for one fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so so that that idea of daily instruction, though, I, I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Mm. Uh, and 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 our and daily walk. Yeah. Yeah. So as w- which is the second which, half of what you talk about this whole week, it, sort of the, the, the dance between being led and taking action um, to be disciplined, but to be discipled. Um, yeah. And and the back and forth uh, of that. On Saturday's uh, devotion, you are talking about Psalm 107, which includes the the verse, Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. I don't know if either of you have seen a desert, and I don't mean a stretch of sand, but I mean like a full-on desert before. Whether I lived in Oklahoma. It's a cultural desert. Well, That's not quite what you're talking about. That's for you, mom. I'm gonna leave that in just for you. <laughs> but like, like, like a a true stretch of a abandoned sand. Yeah. And nothing other than that, as far as you can see, and the notion of wandering in that is so shocking. I I I'll never forget the first time I ever saw a true desert where. You look out as if it's a forest, which, you know, to like when we see forests and, you know, long stretches of grass is a certain like wow and life that, yeah. and, you know, that that you know, sort of gives at least to my own spirit. But to see a stretch of nothing but hot and desolation yeah. is so uncomfortable yeah. to even to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this. So some wandered finding no way. You. You don't want to wander in a desert, yeah. <laughs> and you certainly want to eventually find your way. And to your point, James, of um, walking through daily life, none of us want to be in a desert. What's the only way not to be in a desert? It is to be led. That's right. Um, and that's where the psalm ends out: is they cry to the Lord for their trouble, for their trouble, and He delivered them. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico for a couple of years, and it's, it's not uh, over the mountain there on your way to Los Alamos. There's white sands. I don't know if mm-hmm. you guys have ever been to white sands, but it looks like the Sahara, like I imagine the Sahara would look. I should say I've never been. But just dunes of sand for, for miles. And, and you look out there, and it, it is exactly what you are describing in the sense of you would not, first of all, I, how would you even get your bearings, right? And then you would not want to wonder aimlessly lost without a home without a place you don't even have a target that you're getting trying to get to uh that would be a despairing situation to be in and nothing to navigate by like it all just looks the same so there's no right yeah that's why they use because the stars e- out there because again. even those dunes shift they shift every day you know um which you know 
th- there aren't. I mean, yes, there are some mountains <laughs> in in deserts, but but in the sense, the big mounds you see are just these shifting mounds of sand. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's why we are still discovering archaeological things in Egypt, <laughs> right? Is is because those sands shift, and we're like, oh, there's a whole city there. You know? <laughs> we didn't even know about this place. Wow. I wonder if that, Michael, as you say that, then I wonder if that works as a good metaphor to talk about um, how many of us as Christians, you know. We, we get that, that moment, or that moment where we're freed from slavery, right? We'll call it a, a moment of salvation, that kind of I, I, accepting Jesus into your heart kind of moment. I think all of us came from traditions that talk about that to some degree. And then our kind of, so we go through the Red Sea, we get our mm-hmm. baptismal moment, mm-hmm. and we, be, we get stamped with the identity of becoming a, a part of the people of God. And then just kind of wander around in our faith without any real direction of of where we're going what the goal is why we're doing this like we as long as we've got that moment of got crossed the red sea it's almost like we you know our baptism it's almost like all right we're good to go hmm. we don't have to worry about anything else god's going to take care of it or, or not even that we, we don't have to worry about becoming anything else like we have well and i think that then that gets to the other side of this whole dance which is yes it takes god's leading but it takes our submission to his yeah. leading yeah that's exactly right. Yeah, I was working through that metaphor and thinking about, you know, the Israelites. Mm. They wandered in the wilderness, yeah. but they were being led. Right, right. So there's wandering, not mm. just for the sake of wandering. Yeah. And, and to some, it's a misnomer to say that they wandered really at all because they were being led the entire time, right? They, they were being led by the pillars of, of smoke and fire and, and by Moses and God and and. We use that wandering in the wilderness, I think, because we like alliteration. But uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, their their forty years of wandering wasn't a random time period. It was it was set by God. It was one generation. Um, but you're right. I mean, they weren't they weren't really wandering. It, it, but I think that we do that. I, I can. It's just my own personal experience uh, coming out of uh, out of the chains of sin and really feeling like I've been freed. Now I'm, I'm, I'm saved or whatever. That's the language I used to use when I was younger, but then putting no direction behind that, Hmm. it's very easy to wander your way back into Egypt, (laughs) number one, Hmm. but also like freedom in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that metaphor works or not, but that, that makes sense to me. So this devotional is split up into two halves. Uh, the first half, which we are coming to an end uh, this week, is about you know the Exodus, the slavery in Egypt, and the Exodus. Starting next week, we'll jump into the exile. So we're skipping a whole period where Israel actually is in the land that God promised them. Hmm. Um, but as as after so after the Israelites wander for forty years in the desert, and and God has told Moses, Joshua is going to take the lead here. You are not going to go with them. Um, Deuteronomy is the book where Moses sits down with the people, the generation, some of which were not in slavery, some of which were born while they were wandering in the wilderness, sits down with them and retells the law. Basically, Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law. Um, this idea that, that I talk about on Friday here, what I get from that is this this um, deep, deep concern in Deuteronomy, but also I think in our Christian walk and in, in, in our um, in our in, in our faith is 
is the forgetfulness that we have and and what it means to truly remember who we are what god has done for us Mm -hmm. and and what that looks like how does that motivate our walk i had a professor who referred to the book of deuteronomy as a as a book of grace and he he did so specifically because it's so often referred to as a book of law yeah which which it is from a literary standpoint of course but he also he he never called it the book of Deuteronomy. He would always call it the gospel according to Moses. Oh wow, I like um, that a lot. B- because of the notion of it of it <laughs> gripping of, of it gripping a story of this is God's story of salvation and of grace for our people. Um, it's not just a it's not just a story of rules, and and in that same fashion, I think that gets at what you're talking about in terms of the challenge the church has and how we look at the new testament yeah. of this is the story of god's message of salvation for our people not it's not a book of law yeah um it is but it's not a book of law <laughs> right right um it, it's so much more and more life-giving than that it it really for me gets back to the story right and this is this is what i highlighted but um telling the stories of our faith you know, so we talked about this before, maybe. Um, but when I was growing up, we Sunday night we had worship service, right? So it wasn't just Sunday morning. We had to come back, and I hated it as a kid. All right, <laughs> yeah. I hated it. But but we did we did no prayer meetings worship, meetings. and there were two things. There were two things that happened at Sunday night worship that did not happen at any other time at church. Number one is we had uh, requests for the hymn, so you could just shout out a number, right? And then then we would sing it. That was cool. I thought that was cool. Yeah. The second part, which I thought was really boring at the that. time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Michael would Can love we that. do that, Michael? <laughs> Joshua's got the skills for it, so yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the second thing that happened. That would be fun. The second thing that happened that I thought was incredibly boring at the time, but was, which was shaping me in a way that I did not know, is we'd have testimony night. Hmm. You know, where people would just stand up and they would, you know, the, the pastor would say, all right, who has a testimony? You know, and we would just sit there until somebody stood up and gave a testimony and then another person would go and then we'd spend the entire the entire uh, word section of the of the worship service uh, would just be testimonies about what God is doing in people's lives. That's those stories of, of faith that, uh, like I said, I thought was incredibly boring as a six year old. But as I got older, became really formative for me, things that I could remember as I went through similar things, just remembering that God is present, even in dark moments, that God is present in joyful moments. Um, but that story of faith, remembering what God has done for us, is our motivation for moving forward with God. That's one of the things that Deuteronomy makes very clear. When, you know, you get the famous greatest commandment in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with your whole being, basically. And the question is, why? You know, mm-hmm. yeah, if you read the rest of the chapter, you get to a point where... Moses knows, like, I know that I'm not going to be with you guys in the promised land, and there's going to be generations down the road who don't have any memory of what God has done for us. Why do we do this? Because once we were slaves and God redeemed us is a powerful, powerful motivation, a powerful story to tell. Have you had that experience yourself, though, of of the story of faith being um, being so a part of who we are? Um, you know, one of the things I appreciate, Michael, about the way you do music 
is is connecting these stories that we've been talking about connecting stories not just of from scripture or from our own personal lives but the story of the christian tradition itself and and, and making these connections i think is incredibly important to see that this is this story from deuteronomy is a christian story this is part mm-hmm. of who we are mm-hmm. this is our people right this is our history that we're talking about uh, if we truly believe ourselves to be descendants of Abraham in faithfulness, then this hmm. this is our story. Yeah, I think I begin to extrapolate that a little bit, in so far as that's the concern that I have um, for the church moving into the future. Like, how diligent are the people of God going to be about continuing to tell the story? Yeah. How good of a job are we doing learning the story? Yeah. So that we can retell it. Um, you know, how active is Northside Church in Bible study and prayer and sharing their testimony with their friends and family. Like, how are we engaging our community in the story yeah. for them to come to a place where they can say, hey, I want to know more about that story, or I believe that story, or, you know, I want to know my, my kids are engaged in that story. Yeah. Mm. Like, that becomes a place for me where I really get convicted about how good of a job I'm doing telling the story. Yeah. When was the last time you told your own story of faith or the story of your family? Like, when was the last time you had an opportunity to do that? When was the last time that you took the opportunity to do that? Terrible. Well, and beyond um, even personal stories, the the notion of there being collective story. Like, I I, yeah. I think about yeah. you know, you know, back in November was Northside's seventieth anniversary. You know, we continue to look towards seventy five as you know, in the next big celebration of the church. What, um. And, and I'm always conscientious of any time we have a funeral and the statement is made, this was a pillar or this is a founder um, of, of Northside Church. And I, to some degree, it makes me almost perk up that much more yeah. in listening to members of the family talk about these people and what not only is their own life story, um, but what is their relationship to Northside Church? Even? Yeah, yeah. Um, because beyond us all individually having stories, the church has a story, and even local congregations have a absolutely. story, absolutely, um, and, and, a, and a witness to share. All about the story. You know that that has been one neat. You know, I've been on staff for almost ten years, and soaking up the stories of the church and learning mm-hmm. about the people who were members and who were the founding members and yeah just the way the way the campus was set up and how the architecture came together like it is neat it's neat yeah. stuff to know and there's probably a lot of people who have joined the church that haven't heard the stories that um, right. I've had the opportunity to hear over the years so and i wonder if part of that is that our the culture that we live in doesn't value these kind of stories anymore like we want the 140 character tweet or whatever you know we don't want to get into the details of of why we are who we are and what we what we do uh especially as it talks about our story i don't know maybe maybe that's true maybe that's not see and i think that is one of the challenges of doing ministry in the future we've got to figure out how do you how do you tell the story that way yeah you know i mean how do you how do you tell the story when there's a pandemic and you can't actually have church yeah like that's part of the challenge of the future. All right. Anything else? Anything we didn't touch on you guys want to throw in here? The prayers are like the most confusing prayers I've ever read. It's because they're ancient. 
they're from Anselm and Augustine. I feel like they were trying to be extra deep, and they were I like really. <laughs> I love them. Elizabeth picked them all. So reading this you can talk. You can talk to Elizabeth. Oh about come that. on, guys, quit trying so hard. <laughs> And see, you don't, so it gets to the point, you don't like the prayers. They're part of our story, man. Those are ancient prayers, dude. <laughs> like, that's that's something that's like, you don't like it because it's unfamiliar. Right? Exactly right. No, so that's, that's what exactly about, right. That's what I'm talking about, So you just about. keep exposing me to it, and eventually I'll come along. It'll click. Oh, that's funny. You ever feel like that with elements of worship, Michael? We're just yes. going to keep doing this. Yes. Until it's meaningful. <laughs> Well, guys, uh, Nick, thank you as, for joining us as always. And Michael, we really want to appreciate you coming here, dropping oh. some facts, dropping some information, yes. and and just your presence being here and and, and our conversation. No, I love these talks. It's been it's been great. We appreciate having you here, and we appreciate having you as our director of music ministries at Northside Church. Um, <laughs> and that's all we got. Northside Church, go out there, walk in the path of the Lord, and try to remember who you are. Nick, you got anything? Peace. Peace. <laughs>